Welcome to episode three of the Atlanta Jazz Notes podcast, where we profile the many amazing people who make up the Atlanta jazz scene. I'm your host, Matt Miller. This week, I had the chance to interview the great musician, scholar, minister, composer, and educator, Dr. Dwight Andrews. Summing up Dr. Andrews' career in a paragraph is an impossibility. He has achieved incredible success in a multitude of professional fields, from music performances with Jerry Allen, Wadada Leo Smith, Branford Marsalis, and as a leader. He has worked as a musical director on Broadway with playwright August Wilson. Dr. Andrews is a celebrated author and lecturer, and has taught at many of the best academic institutions in the world, including Emory University, where he has worked for more than 30 years as a professor. He is the senior minister at the First Congregational United Church of Christ in Atlanta. In this wide-ranging conversation, Dr. Andrews talks about growing up in the culturally rich city of Detroit, attending and working at Yale University, collaborating with the legendary playwright August Wilson, the history of jazz music from the 19th century to the present, investigating the intersection of the sacred and secular in music and spiritual life, the Black Lives Matter movement, academia, and so much more. Hi, Dr. Andrews, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Matthew? Doing well. Thanks so much for, for making time to be with me today. I appreciate it. Sure. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfectly. Yeah, thank you. You know, we never met before, but I'm a, I'm a fan of yours from afar. <laughs> so, so I was thinking that would be great to interview you. And I you really you're very kind. It. Thanks. Well, I'm glad I could work it out. It's yeah. uh, This is a very complicated time. And so, yeah. you know, we're all trying to kind of do what we need to do and keep moving forward, but it's a real challenge. Yeah, and you're, and you're, te- so you're teaching at Emory still and also yeah. at... Um, is it Spelman as well? Well, no, no. I'm just teaching at Emory. I, I was a visiting professor at Spelman, mm-hmm. um, a dis, uh, visiting professor during the year uh, 2015 and 16. Okay, gotcha. My, yeah, my permanent appointment is really at Emory, though. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and, that's, and that's been since 87, I think? Yeah, 88. Mm-hmm. And do you know, are you guys going back to school this, this fall or do you know? Well, it's, uh, it's really a mess. We don't really know for sure. Yeah. Um, we know we're going back, but the question is in what form? Mm-hmm. So Emory has been asking the faculty to uh, kind of plan to be flexible. Mm-hmm. So um, my large course, my history of jazz course is going to have to be taught essentially online because we don't have a room big enough to gotcha. be able to social distance and do everything safely. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a heartbreak uh, because, you know, part of the joy is watching uh, kids discover the music, you know, sure. Absolutely. It's harder to do that uh, virtually. I know. Yeah. So, uh, but I'm just trying to um, figure out how to be as creative as I can with the goal of, really instructing uh, folks about the music and how it fits in with the history and the culture. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I have to say, I mean, I was going to, I had a whole idea of questions to ask you, but that m- makes me think about, um, I would love to take that class to hear your perspective on the, on the history of jazz. Cause it's like, I was, I was listening to a lecture of yours and it was, you were talking about, um, just like the origins of jazz, like New Orleans and things like that. And that might be a good place to kind of jump into this conversation. In the lecture, it was, it was at Emory, and you were talking about the sacred and the secular and how those things, I mean, there's kind of this, this, a lot of people talk about the origins of jazz being in like, a, you know, the red light district or something like that. But you, you were kind of, you were expanding that, you know, saying this, that there was this kind of sec, this sacred um, connection that goes, mm-hmm. obviously goes really far back. And I thought that was really interesting to kind of take it 
um, back to, you know, back to spirituals and back to, you know, into the 19th century too. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit. I just yeah, well, find that fascinating. It's, um, it's part of kind of my, um, my take on the way in which we do the history of jazz, mm -hmm. which as you just described, you know, it's kind of the familiar trope of, you know, where we had Storyville and that's where all the whorehouses were and that's where yeah. Jelly Roll was and et cetera. But I think the more, the more profound story is the story that uh, talks about all of the ingredients that make up jazz that really predate, predate story build. You know, mm -hmm. it's the African connections and the, uh, the Caribbean connections and all of those things and the way the slave trade was practiced in Louisiana mm -hmm. that I think really makes for the kind of gumbo that ultimately jazz comes out of. Mm -hmm. And that was not a, a simply secular expression, right? Because yeah. African musics are inherently uh, sacred uh, in many different ways. And so I just try to, I try to get my students and I try to get myself to, to open ourselves up to thinking about the music in a bigger term. Mm -hmm. And so that helps us to understand all of those things about New Orleans that have gotten stripped away from the history of the music, like the fact that we sing when the saints go marching in because that's a church hymn. Mm -hmm. and when we started to do the second line, the players were improvising on those hymns. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way to kind of create a different nexus of understandings of where this stuff comes from. Sure. And I think it really gives us, a, or gives me at least, a deeper appreciation uh, for this complicated music that we sometimes want to simplify. I know, I know. It really is not simple at all. And it, it, it's fascinating that your career has kind of taken on that. It almost exemplifies that idea, you know, working working in the church and also the sacred and the secular kind of thing and then bringing, bringing the music into the church. Um, I love that. Yeah, trying to work it all out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I'm really curious about your career too. You have this, this amazing life story too, um, growing up in Detroit, which is obviously a great jazz town. Um, well, before we start, I was going to ask you: Do you do you use the term jazz? Do you have a, Do you like that term, or do you do you like to use a different term? Well, it's um, it's kind of like the term black, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, um, uh, <laughs> uh, these terms are so loaded. Yeah. That I'd rather not spend my time trying to unpack. Yeah. The racist underpinnings of even the language. Yeah. To really get at something more essential, which is to kind of describe what makes the jazz so important mm -hmm. and i'm much less concerned with the label as i am kind of what the meanings are gotcha of course i don't i don't labor under it i know that you know in previous generations duke and others you know have really resisted uh that kind of language and people like uh, yusuf latif from detroit mm -hmm. you know by the time he got to where he ended up spiritually and in terms of his own religiosity it was completely anathema to jazz. That mm -hmm. just didn't fit what, what yeah, he was course. doing. Of course. Uh, so I think I, I, I accept the term more as a matter of convenience. than Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. Um, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I'm just curious about that because the terminology is kind of fraught. So yeah, but we'll use it. We'll use it casually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so in Detroit, obviously this is this storied um, jazz town. Um, growing, can you tell me a little bit about growing up there? What were your experiences with music and, and what you first heard? Um, well, first of all, before I do that, I just read a book, uh, reread a book that is really interesting that 
If you haven't read it, it's called Motor City Music. You know it by Mark Slobin. I don't think I know that one. Mark Slobin is an ethnomusicologist who taught for a very long time at Westland. Mm -hmm. But he is actually from Detroit. Really? And uh, he's a much older guy. But Mark wrote this book, man, that is an incredible uh, kind of story of the unique musical culture of Detroit. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, I just spoke with him the other day because I said, man, very few people have kind of unpacked the story, which really helps to kind of give you an understanding of the various ethnicities that were in Detroit to make up the Detroit jazz scene. Mm. And so it was very helpful um, to read his book. Uh, but yeah, I had a fantastic upbringing and his book reminded me of the fact, Matt, that, you know, in those days, I'm talking about the uh, 60s, in the late 50s, early 60s, mm -hmm. Detroit was an incredibly rich and varied cultural city. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has great museums. It had a great or has a great orchestra, and it had a great public school education system. Mm -hmm. And because of that, and because of the shifting demographics, uh, Detroit was just a great place to grow up. Mm -hmm. um, man, I was playing in a, a German beer garden band when I was like 12 years old and really? loved it. Yeah, <laughs> because we didn't have all this bullshit um, kind of notions of whose music is whose. Sure. And so because of that, I think Detroit was the kind of place where Armenians and Eastern European Jews and working class people from the South and, the, you know, it was all in that mix. Mm -hmm. And that made just for a very, very rich uh, kind of uh, musical scene. Sure. And it wasn't racially comprised as much as it was uh, kind of there was something for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I started studying clarinet with Vince Melodon, he was the second principal of the Detroit Symphony. I was like 13 years old. Mm -hmm. But it was not crazy to think, well, if you could afford it, you would study with the best cat in town. Sure. Uh, sure. You know, and I'm always uh, kind of saddened by the way in which uh, American culture in the last 50 years has become so fragmented around bullshit values yeah. that lessen all of the musics and our understanding of it. Absolutely. So Detroit was a great place. Motown was live and kicking. Yeah. You know, every teenager thought they were going to be the next Temptations, and <laughs> I was certainly in that number. And, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and because those are people that were living in our neighborhoods. You sure. Know, um, you saw them up close and you heard the performances and I started working professionally as a, was a young um, kind of rock and roll band. And we thought we were going to be the next, you know, big group. Yeah. Unfortunately, this little group called the Jackson five uh, got to the first. Uh, <laughs> I think I've heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> but we used to play the parties for the Gordies and, you wow. know, because they were, they were that accessible. Sure. Um, so you had that on one side, you had these community bands and orchestras all happening. You had these uh, ethnic bands like I was playing in. I actually wore later hosen, man. I mean, really? I, was, I was like, I was like the Don Byron before Don Byron. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And it was great. And so you lived and breathed the music and um, that's the kind of upbringing that I had. That's and, what I've heard. I've heard about that scene and that it was for generations. It was like that, you know, like this, because just you know, because you know, people like Paul Chambers or people you know who are, who are generations before you, um, yeah, the same thing. Like studying with the studying with someone in the symphony, but then playing you know all kinds of 
different kinds of music and then obviously the jazz and then the jazz more. I don't think people realize that obviously some people do, but the jazz connection to Motown, how those are just, they're just jazz players, you know? That's um, absolutely so that's, right. Uh, that's uh, why the band was so, so slamming. I know. When you looked at the horn sections, like people like Marcus Belgraves and mm-hmm. Paul Reiser was doing the arrangements. I mean, these are fabulous musicians and they had been on the road with Ray and Ray Charles and everyone else. And so you really had a deep, rich kind of musical culture. Sure. And cats were not defined by what style they played. Yeah. Cats were defined by if they could play or not. Yeah, of course. And, um, you know, um, it was a it was a wonderful environment, I'm sure. and um, and it's still producing cats. But you know, obviously, both the economics and the racial and political dynamics have become, I think, uh, really damaging ultimately mm-hmm. to the richness of Detroit culture. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, uh, I think there's a mirror to the moment where we are now. I mean, mm-hmm. after the riots of '68. Things changed dramatically, mm-hmm. and uh, in ways that I think we're still coming to understand. Yeah. But um, the ways in which um, things became so segregated in a new way. Yeah. And uh, education really was kind of uh, disemboweled uh, mm-hmm. by the lack of tax base and the lack of will. Mm-hmm. And everything became so oppositional. Um, I think things changed just as I was leaving. Yeah. Because you, know? you, left, uh, you left in what, I late left 60s? In six, I, le- I left in 69. Okay. So, yeah. But I was, in, I was in high school when the riots happened in 68. Mm-hmm. And I saw the tanks coming down the street. And um, had never seen a tank up close. You know, yeah. that kind of, we've been in that zone really since 1968. And Detroit never recovered. That's yeah. the, that's the great sadness oh absolutely and i know just just briefly like listening to interviews with older jazz musicians you know they were their parents worked in at general motors or they worked you know they were they had solidly middle class jobs and those jobs just went away you know so it's this economic and racial it's just it's it's the story is it's really sad um but yeah no but but i'm I'm curious about your you went to cast tech right yeah, absolutely. Which is, um, I was looking at the alumni list. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, what was that? What was that environment like? It was, a, it was a magnet school. It was, uh, yeah. Well, they didn't call it magnet school then, but okay. uh, yeah, it was an amazing, huge school in this huge building in which all kids had to declare a major. Mm-hmm. So you had to kind of apply to get in. So if you were a chemistry bio major, chem bio major. You know, you had to have a certain kind of a score and you had to show aptitude. Similarly, you know, if you were going to get in the music program, you had to audition. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I played uh, one of the Mozart, I can't remember on clarinet what I played. It was too long ago. Mm-hmm. But it was just an amazingly um, high level environment. Yeah. Because it was the smartest kids in the town. Yeah. And because of the reputation musically, kids came from all of the suburbs to go to cast. Gotcha. Because of the teachers, because of the pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And um, it was it was literally I look back at those days as that that was the best education I could have ever received. I'm sure. And it really sustained me and all the cats that came before me. I mean, people like well, you know, all I mean, of it was unbelievable. Cats, you, know, <laughs> you know, where do you start, right? I know. Um, 
yeah, that was, um, that was an unusual experience. And once again, it was because it wasn't framed on anything else but kind of musical, kind of, um, kind of the canon, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, as, as you well know, in terms of the uh, orchestra literature, I mean, they were playing Strauss. And they were playing like Jolenspiegel. I mean, these things, these pieces were bitchly hard yeah. pieces. Sure. And when I got to the University of Michigan, virtually all of that repertoire I had already played as a clarinet. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you started on clarinet, obviously. On clarinet, yeah. When did you, and, it, and then you took up the saxophone shortly after? Well, you know, I, I did like most teenagers. I mean, the, the clarinet, I may have enjoyed playing in the German beer garden band, but the girls yeah. didn't like the German beer garden <laughs> music. So the saxophone was more sexy and plus yeah. it gave me a chance to have a little high school band. Sure. So I, I really wasn't very good, uh, I didn't think, uh, because I wasn't studying it. I was doing it more kind of on a capricious level. Mm -hmm. But then there were such good saxophone players in Detroit mm -hmm. that it, it forced you to kind of want to be better. Sure. And, you know, uh, people like Don Senta, you know, the classical mm -hmm. saxophone. Don had gone to Cass yeah. and studied with Larry Teal. So, I mean, Don kind of raised the bar. <laughs> On saxophone, um, sure, certainly, yeah. yeah. Was Larry was Larry Teal the teacher there? Uh, no, but because Larry Teal was teaching a lot of the great saxophonists from yeah. Detroit. Sure. Uh, he had already gone up to Michigan by the time I graduated, so I actually studied with Teal. Gotcha. Uh, and when I got to college, but Teal was already a legend, and people like Senta and Joe Henderson. Well, I knew about Joe but, Henderson yeah. being being with Larry Teal. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you know, you know. <laughs> it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> You know, in your roster. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was a part of it. And and then in those days, because jazz was really not accepted as a as a formal thing to study, mm -hmm. um, most of my experience was pretty informal. Mm -hmm. And even when I got to Michigan, I wanted to learn how to play the saxophone better and eventually got into Teal's studio. But there was no playing jazz as a student of Larry. I wouldn't think so. Yeah, no, I wouldn't absolutely think so. Absolutely not. And, um, you know, so anything we did around the music was really clandestine because Teal was really a bear about not um, having multiple approaches to uh, your chops and to your sound. So he, act, he actively discouraged it. Yeah, ab absolutely. Not, wow. not just actively. If I was going to be a part of his studio, there was not, no jazz playing uh, as a part of his studio. Now, admittedly, that was 40, you know, 50 years ago. But, yeah. Um, but that's the way it was in those days. Yeah. What's well, still? I mean, it's like if you go around here. I mean, there's the classical saxophone studio and then the jazz studio. Yeah, you know, that's it's the exactly same thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and and Frank, I mean, speaking from experience with that too. I mean, it's like it's hard to switch back and forth. I don't know between on saxophone. That's a whole different approach. But absolutely you know? is, and whole different literature. Yeah. But you know, um, for guys like Joe Henderson who really wanted to understand the saxophone or yeah. sent who, you know, for me was like Jesus descended. I mean, who, who plays like that? Uh, know, that's beautiful, uh, yeah. So I, I wanted to, you know, have what they were having. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know. Sure. So, at, so, so University of Michigan, bachelor's and master's there. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah exactly. I thought I was going to be a high school band director. That's what I thought I wanted to do mm -hmm. until I got a chance to student teach and be a high school band director. <laughs> and um, Then I decided no. Uh, and then I went back for my master's in woodwind instruments. 
Gotcha. Um, and so from there, I um, and I had a wonderful experience at Michigan as well. It was very rich and a lot of great musical experiences. Uh, but it was a strict, pretty strict conservatory experience. It wasn't mm -hmm. terribly uh, broad-based. Um, but it did what it was supposed to do, which was to make you a player um, because it was so com fiercely competitive. Uh, you didn't read books or write papers. You practiced and played. That was it. Mm -hmm. and I, I loved it and hated it at the same time. I can imagine. <laughs> so after that, I went to divinity school because um, I uh, just – felt like in some ways music was my own selfish pleasure and uh this was at the time when all hell was broken breaking out in america and the yeah. civil rights protests and not just the riots but just the i became aware of things that i think i had been pretty sheltered away from because i had been so insulated by music sure and uh as i became the bigger world that led me to go to seminary more as a seeker than anything else and this is on the east coast at yale yeah yeah mm -hmm. did you spend did you spend time in new york before then or would you were you yeah. always in connecticut i was always in connecticut i just made that ride down to, to new york virtually sure. every second that i could <laughs> you know? so this, this is in the would be by the early 70s then the very very early yeah, 70s uh, when i got there I got to New Haven in 74, and by the time I started working with Wadada, Leo Smith, and those guys, that would have been 75, 76, and so, yeah, that became a regular run for me, so I was in New York as much as I could be. And it started off just going to see music, I suppose? I, yeah, doing that, but also there was a really pretty active uh, theater scene, and mm -hmm. so the public theater uh, in New York did a lot of experimental uh, theater, and I was interested in that as well. So mm -hmm. everything about New York drew me to it. I just never really lived there. I'm interested because I was, I was watching another interview with you. Talk, I mean, you were talking about that, how everything was connected in New York in the 70s. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the theater and, and music. And it was, it was intentional. You know, it was like these things were coming together and people were kind of feeding or getting inspiration from each other mm -hmm. in those realms. So who were the, some of the first people you saw like, who really kind of blew your mind in New York? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I most of the times that I came to New York, it was either as a, with a gig that is actually work with someone. I really wasn't going to concerts because we were all too broke to go hear somebody <laughs> in a club. Yeah. Uh, but um, there was a wonderfully rich uh, time to be there because people like Intazaki Shange was writing her first play, mm -hmm. and she was doing poetry and. You know, David Murray uh, was inviting me to come and just get in the shed uh, and yeah. his loft and uh, Stanley Crouch with his crazy self. I mean, it was just yeah. really this rich bed of poets and writers and June jo Jordan, the poet, and people like that uh, just made for an incredibly active scene. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of visual artists also doing work in very small, uh, kind of not terribly... Uh, um, flamboyant places but mm -hmm. it was just rich because of the exchange of ideas about art and its possibility but probably for me the most influential were um people like Intozaki and um and oliver lake because they were all working together all of the time mm -hmm. so there was a kind of scene with oliver and and david um 
a kind of new music scene. Leo Smith, Braxton, mm-hmm. all of those cats were there kind of doing different things, but everything, there was a kind of nexus between uh, these artists. And it was just unbelievably rich. I'm sure. Um, and that's what, that's what made it happen. For sure. And then from there, you were, you know, you, you joined these groups and I've saw videos of you performing in Europe, you know, that I guess that, that uh, morphed into touring when you weren't busy at Yale, I suppose you were touring. Yeah. With these I should have been too. more busy at Yale. but. I- <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you did pretty well there, right? So you, so you graduated from Yale um, in the, in 77. Yeah. Yeah. I got my, uh, MDiv in 77. Mm-hmm. And then a few years after that, um, I decided that I really, I think I had seen enough of the music scene that I started to get a sense of the trajectory of where the music scene in New York is and where it was headed. Mm-hmm. And because of that, and because I had met so many fabulous musicians who couldn't get a gig in New York mm-hmm. uh, and who had become bitter and pissed off, I decided that that was, I did not want to live a life in which I was waiting by the phone for some turkey to call me so I could do a one night gig. Um, And so in order to do the music that I loved, I figured out early on that I needed to be independent of the jazz scene, which is its own kind of slavery. Um, And so um, that's one of the reasons I went back to graduate school, but I also loved um, I, I found that I wasn't such an awful student by the time I started to read books. And I had this great sense of uh, discovery and curiosity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's kind of what led me back to graduate school at a very, very, once again, rich time in New Haven. Oh, sure. You know, where the, both the teachers and the students and the young teachers, I mean, it was such a hotbed. I was just at the right place at the right time. Absolutely. Was Jane Bloom at the new school when you were there? Yeah, she was one of the one of the main faculty members. It was, I mean, it was unbelievable. The really? faculty. Well, it's funny. I was looking at your CV, and you you, you talked about Kirk Newrock too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was one of my teachers too. Who was one of the most? I mean, he talk about blowing your mind, like just being so different. Yeah. Um, and he, so he was one of my. He was on the faculty there, and Reggie Workman is kind of the chair, um, who's just fabulous, and um, Billy Harper is there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cecil McBee was there. It was just, I mean, just world class. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, so it was, it was just unbelievable. Um, so it was amazing. But I'm sure, you, I mean, at Yale, I, I'm curious, at Yale, you met, is that where you met August Wilson at Yale? Yes, right. Because right. he, was, he was there. I mean, that, that was, talk about perfect timing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can, there. By the way, there's a guy cutting a tree outside. Is that really disturbing? Yeah. Or is that okay? Can't hear it. Yeah, just barely. Um, so, yeah, um, my friend Skip Gates, um, we call it the golden age at Yale because, you know, uh, Skip had just come back from Oxford or Cambridge, wherever he did his degree. Cornell West was there teaching and, wow. you know, um, people like um, Tony Morrison and Derek Walcott. I mean, it was just the wow. people that we were drinking coffee and having cigarettes with uh, just was amazing. Oh, and yeah. August was basically... Um, a no-name poet from Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Lloyd Richards said, you know, I think this guy has a real gift. And needless to say, he does, did have a, a gift. And all of those associations began there. Gotcha. Yeah. Wow. I, 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 it's unbelievable. 
this, yeah. this the people that were there then. Yeah. Um, I'm really curious about, uh, I would love, I mean, anything you want to talk about is great. I'd love to, talk, to hear a bit more about August Wilson, those collaborations, but also I'm curious about your work. I know you're, you're, you work on um, kind of the spiritual evolution of jazz, of the great jazz musicians. Yeah. And I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit too. Um, just like I know about Ellington and Coltrane and just kind of, um, is there, is there, there's a book in the works about that. Is that right? Are yeah, you, and, okay. and if, this, uh, if this virus keeps up, it might get finished much sooner. <laughs> than um, yeah. So um, I have long been interested in the, whatever the spiritual capacity of jazz is. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm not an ideologue about it, but in some ways my, years of teaching have uh, kind of brought me to the conclusion that a part of what racism does is it flattens out our understanding of everything mm -hmm. and especially about black cultural production. Mm -hmm. So we have this very, very small idea about what jazz is and what it does and what it sounds like and what its capacity is. And when I started to look at the sacred music of Ellington uh, or Yusuf and Coltrane, I said all of these cats had, toward the end of their life, ironically, an interest in kind of, you know, pivoting toward making a spiritual expression. That's what got me there. Mm -hmm. And then through my own experience with uh, Jerry Allen, who did Mary Lou's sacred music, mm -hmm. I got a chance to say, you know, there are a lot of cats that are doing interesting things uh, and trying to make specifically spiritual music. And so this book really is an exploration of their explorations, what led them to it, uh, what theological and religious backgrounds impacted their, essentially what they did. I'm, I'm including uh, Dave Brubeck in that. Yeah. Uh, and David is a little bit more slippery because he kind of was all over the place. But I think everybody became much more conscious of something in the music that had a, a, a deeper power than we sometimes give it credit for. Mm. So this book is really uh, trying to kind of frame jazz around that. Yeah, that's uh, what Which I take it back to its original pre-Storyville <laughs> understandings. Absolutely. And so, it, was, it was interesting, I started to interrupt you, but like mm. um, you, in, one, in that lecture at Emory, you were talking about literally the physical space, like, you know, being in a club as opposed to being in a church. Yeah. And I mean, do you think, do you think there's some element of, them just being fed up of playing in clubs like they thought their music was was meant for something higher and there's an interesting kind of movement toward that yeah that well that's a really interesting question uh, and i think i haven't thought about it quite in that way mm -hmm. i think where i am right now and and matt that might change next week but mm -hmm. for at least for brubeck and for ellington I think they became much more self-conscious about their legacy. Mm -hmm. And so they really were interested in making sure that they composed a body of works that could be considered master works. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Ellington, who was always very savvy, it's not that he wasn't spiritual, but um, I don't think he was fed up with touring or any of that, but I think he wanted to put his gigs on a different level. Mm -hmm. And so, I think both for him and for Brubeck, uh, most of their works were commissioned, the oratorios and the rest of it. So I think that was driving part of it. But I think for Train and Yusuf, who were in relationship with one another, mm -hmm. I think their quest was very, very different. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think they were as, as concerned about legacy 
as about some spiritual truth in the creative process. Mm-hmm. And consequently, they created this amazing music that's very hard to explain. I know. Because it's not being driven by all the bullshit that we want to kind of put around it with a bow. I know. Um, but I think that's what drove them. So different people had different uh, kind of driving factors. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, I think and I, it was interesting in your, in your lecture that I was listening to, you were talking about how you were talking about Love Supreme, um, which is a great place to, you know, to talk about the subject. But it's, it's so interesting, the, the music after that, how difficult it is to even kind of get a hold of what's going on. Like, yeah. where is it? I mean, it's, do, you, do you deal with that in the book or are you plan on it? And I deal with it in a way that says this music is so hard to unpack mm-hmm. because in its essence, it's really, as I, in my train uh, chapter, I talk to you about uh, train speaking in tongues. Yeah. Because, you know, that kind of practice in Pentecostal churches where, you know, when the Holy Spirit hits you, you start speaking in these unknown tongues. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I describe those late pieces, meditations, transformation, all of those pieces, Om, as being a part of trained speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm. He becomes a kind of vessel um, and that doesn't really easily yield itself to post performance analytics i know i know and they're literally there are those recordings where he actually is yelling he's yeah. you know just vocalizing yeah 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 um it's really and so I, I i'd like us to have an experience where we can kind of appreciate appreciate these expressions for what they literally for what they are mm-hmm. and i think in terms of train he's a great example train could give a shit about what my analytic observations are because that's not what he was trying to show competence in Mm -hmm. and so i this book if i do it right it can just say isn't it wonderful to have a creative vessel um that literally yields all of uh, its possibilities precisely because you know train was a compulsive practicer Mm -hmm. i mean he couldn't practice anymore i mean i mean how how fast how high you know know. i mean we we know we all know the stories but ultimately, by the time he got to the end of his career or end of his life, um, that was no longer what was important. Sure, absolutely. And it, it, it's so interesting, the, the difference between Ellington and Coltrane. Like, it's so intensely personal, the, yeah. Coltr- the Coltrane stuff. And, and certainly Yusuf Latif is in a similar vein. It's just this That's intense right. personal search. And it doesn't, it's totally irrelevant to what other people think. You know, I mean, they didn't get, they really didn't care, I don't think. It was just such a personal mission. Yeah, um, we're just lucky that we had, you know, they were they recorded so much of it, <laughs> you know. Exactly. exactly. And he had, the, he had the ability to just go in there and record when he wanted to, which is so great. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I was thinking as we kind of as we kind of, I don't want to take too much of your time up today. Um, I the conversation. Well, also. likewise, likewise, I wanted to th- I want to see if, if I could throw a couple just some names at you and kind mm-hmm. of get your uh, reaction to these names who are people from your life. Um, Jerry Allen. Yeah. Um, amazing. Yeah. And um, I'm uh, finishing up an essay right now as we speak on her sacred music. Uh, I'm writing it for this special pit issue on on Jerry. And um, she was like my sister and um, um, just um, kind of hard to put it into words, but a very um, generous gift to all of us. Mm-hmm. And um, 
there's not a day that goes by that I don't still feel uh, this profound sense of loss and grief, you know, because we were like two peas in a pod. I mean, I'm waiting for her to call me to say, you know, uh, what's the upper, the highest note for the oboe, you know, <laughs> something, something crazy like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing. Uh, amazing sure. and gifted. And I'm hoping that we will uh, get a, a, a more total understanding of her gifts in the coming years. I hope so too, because you certainly would categorize her as underrated, you know, I mean, or you know, among the general public, it's just unbelievable. And I, I freely admit that I don't have enough of her music. Um, but yeah, I, I love, I love what I do have. I know that you're and your relationship with her was so important and so long standing. Um, can I ask you about, I'm doing a story. I was doing a story when I, we first talked about Ed Blackwell. Yes. Um, what your relationship with Ed Blackwell is uh, or was. Well, it was really uh, as uh, uh, just a kind of fellow side person uh, mm -hmm. because uh, Ed was living between New York and New Haven in the 90s. And I got a chance, because of this interview, I got a chance to go back to the recording that I did with him mm -hmm. uh, for Jay Hogarth. Um, and it was, it was me and Blackwell, James Newton, um, Jay and uh, the bassist. Ray, no, not Ray. Um, hold on. I had to bring the album so I wouldn't forget. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was Mark Elias, who had also oh, been sure. in the evening. So, um, Blackwell, actually, I think this was one of his last recordings. Um, mm -hmm. Because he died, I think, that year, the following year. But uh, I had worked with Blackwell in a couple of small group settings, really as a hired person. So, I can't say I knew him well. I just enjoyed um you know that generation of cats they didn't necessarily do a lot of talking mm -hmm. uh but you know in those still moments they would say these little things that would say you, you would spend the next two weeks trying to figure out well what did he mean by that mm -hmm. so he was kind of like that for me and uh he was teaching up at westland along with bill Barron, mm -hmm. who i knew better because bill i had actually taken some lessons with bill Sure. But, but once again, these guys didn't talk a lot, you know, I mean, you know, I'd say a few things and then it was about making some music. And yeah. um, uh, I, I think I underestimated, at least at the time, I don't think I fully appreciated all of what Ed did as a player. Mm -hmm. uh, I almost had to, in that following two decades, I had to start listening to him more and I would go, damn. You know, because now I understand why all the drummers would say Blackwell, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think as we grow, we listen better and our appreciation deepers. And so mm -hmm. it's really an inspiration because of who he was and how he was. Um, yeah. And, and certainly the tradition, I mean, the, the, the tradition of the drums, is, I mean, maybe more than anyone hearing exactly. that, hearing the New Orleans tradition and his drumming. And it's, and it's so it's like an essential sound. It's not, there's not a lot of other stuff. It's just, it's beautifully simple, but it's so complex. And yeah, I love his playing. And I, that's something that grew on me too. It did not happen initially, you know, because yeah. yeah. it does definitely is not going to hit you over the head. It's just, it's very it's subtle and beautiful. Um, yeah. I want to ask you one, one more name, one more name. Um, Tyrone Jackson here in, here in, here in Atlanta. Um, I think he is the A-list guy. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> he's a wonderful uh wonderfully gifted once again and generous musician mm -hmm. and i think what i love about tyrone is um he really is disciplined 
so that, you know, if you're playing X, he will go in to discover what's at the heart of X. If you're playing Y, he will go there. Mm -hmm. So he won't map on, you know, some superficial bullshit um, to Z, but he'll bring to Z what it needs. And he's really disciplined and really well, well-trained uh, musician who I enjoy talking with um, yeah. and just love being around. He's, yeah, uh, one, he's my favorite, one of my favorite musicians. Me too. Yeah, I love him. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, yeah, he's, and we, we still continue to work, you know, when, when we work. We haven't done that in a while, but yeah. Tyrone is definitely up there. Yeah, maybe, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so um, what's what's next for you? What, I mean, the the book's coming out um, still at at the first congregational church. I mean, you're just such a busy busy person. Yeah. Um, what do you what's what's next on the horizon for you? Um, this this whole season for me, and I've been thinking about it a lot. You know, with the, with the virus and everything, kind of what's important, mm -hmm. and um, what's increasingly important is for me to. Um, contribute to the documentation of the music, which is why the book is so important. I mean, I'm really in some ways so disappointed that uh, the Academy has not evolved in its own understanding of what it reports on and how it reports on it. And so in a sense, our, our intellectual dishonesty with 20th century music is so profound that my energies are really gonna be devoted to doing a lot of writing Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of unpack um, kind of our, our ways right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's interesting, you know, the kids are out in the street protesting and telling us that Black Lives Matter and they do matter. And everybody is becoming repentant, but in such superficial and silly ways mm -hmm. uh, that I think some of us have to kind of, you know, ring the bell and say, hey, uh, it needs a more profound reconciliation than that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as long as we consider and keep studying John Cage and a different class from Anthony Braxton and yeah. Cecil Taylor, we're going to continue the bullshit. And I'm just not willing to do that at this point. Yeah. So I'm going to write and I'm going to try to do some composing. That's great. I hope you will. I, I, I did that revisionist strain in your writing is what really drew me to your work. I love the fact that you're kind of correcting a lot of this. You know, a lot well, of history. Trying, <laughs> yeah, trying to, you know, just trying to, just trying to bring another perspective to yeah, it. Yeah, I think it's really important. Yeah, because as you know, um, you know, what's in the books is what becomes the story. Totally. And um, if somebody doesn't write about Jerry or about Ed, um, if people don't do what you're doing right now, mm -hmm. if there's no record, then part of what this culture does is it consumes and disposes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, of the people that bring it to the table. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm just trying to break that cycle. That's great. Well, thank you so much. It's been, it's been really inspiring talking to you. Well, listen, I appreciate the time and I appreciate your interest. And hopefully yeah. we'll get a chance to, to chat some more. I'd love to hear you playing. Can you direct me to anything of yours? Sure. Um, if you check out my website, uh, it's on, my, it's on my, my email tags. There's a couple things up there, not too, too much. It's relatively new. But, um, and then you know, when, the, when the world opens up again, I'll, 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 you can check out my calendar. It'll be, it'll be have stuff on there again. <laughs> uh, definitely check it out. But yeah, I get to, you know, I, 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 you know, talk about Tyrone and people like that. I've played with him. That's one of my, you know, we have so many great musicians here. So I'll let you know. You can hear some come out, come out and hang out. And I'd love to obviously see any any time you perform as well.
Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll just keep this conversation going, but I do appreciate your reaching out to me. Oh, and sure. Well, let me know uh, what becomes of all of this stuff. And, uh, I will. I'll, yeah. I would definitely do that. Thank you so much. All right. Take all right, bye-bye. Right, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to Episode 3 of the Atlanta Jazz Notes podcast with the great Dr. Dwight Andrews. The music you heard at the beginning and end of the episode is The Gathering by the great pianist Jerry Allen and her band featuring Dr. Dwight Andrews on Woodwinds. Please be sure to check out the website at atljazznotes.com and videos of all the podcasts on our YouTube channel. If you like what you heard, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. They really help us to get the word out and to, um, to get this podcast to more people, so thank you.